You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the first chapter of Matthew. The first chapter of Matthew. Last week, after seeing the Christmas decorations go up here at the church, I decided to switch gears for the month of December. We're at a good stopping point in Philippians, and who doesn't want a little more Christmas this year? I think all of us could use it. So we're going to spend a few weeks in Matthew looking at the King of Christmas. The King of Christmas. This week, we'll look at the king's family with the genealogy of Jesus. Next week, the king's arrival with the birth of Jesus. And then finally, the king's guests with the visit of the wise men. So that's the plan. And I have to ask, aren't you glad that you came here today on Genealogy Day? (laughs) On the day that we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Most of us tend to roll our eyes at the genealogies of Scripture. After all, who has time to read through a list of names? One author referred to it affectionately as the Hebrew phone book of the Bible. And that perspective is certainly an easy trap to fall into. But genealogies, they do more than eulogize the dead. They tell a story. And when it comes to the Bible, they plant our faith deep into history. Several years ago, a a missionary from the Wycliffe Bible Translators worked among a people who had never heard the gospel before in their language. The people hadn't developed writing or reading of any sort within their communications, so it was all oral. And the missionary's first task was to learn the language of the tribe. She then had to change the oral language into a written form and then teach the people how to read and write that language. It was an arduous task that took several years until eventually she was finally ready to start translating the Bible into the people's language. She began with the Gospel of Matthew, and to help expedite the project, she skipped the genealogy in order to get right to the meat and potatoes of Christ, to get right into the story of Jesus. And so she sent her translation work off to be printed to the publisher in a distant city, and she waited for months for the first copies of Matthew to arrive. But when the trucks showed up with the gospel, the people were much more interested in the trucks than they were in the translation. Having spent 10 years on the project, she was crushed when she saw that the people didn't care at all. Nevertheless, she kept plugging away, and in the second edition of Matthew, she included the genealogy. When that arrived, the missionary explained the genealogy to the tribal chief, and the man was flabbergasted. He was floored, and to her astonishment, he said, are you trying to say that this Jesus, the one that you've been telling us about this whole time for 10 years, are you trying to tell us that he was a real person? She replied, yes, of course. He said, I thought you were telling us a story of some mythological character. Once he understood that this Christ was real in space and time, then the chief then came to Christ. And then shortly thereafter, the entire tribe came to Christ as well. So you see, the testimony of Scripture is true. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. 
even the genealogies. In Matthew, it becomes clear that Jesus not only lived and breathed and walked the earth as a man in human history, but that he is also the rightful Messiah. He is the king of Judah and the king of kings. The book is written primarily to a Jewish audience. It was written by a Jew for Jews, as if to say, you can stop looking for your Messiah. He is here. We have found him. Look no further. We have your king. And in order for that to be true, the Messiah must have certain credentials. To this day, no one has sat on the throne for David. No one has sat on his throne since 586 B.C. So in order to prove that Jesus is the king, it must first be proven that Jesus has a rightful claim to the throne. That's the big picture of what we're looking at this morning. These 17 verses that we have before us. This section from start to finish, it all points to Christ. Every aspect of what we are looking at today, it all points to Jesus. It proves beyond any doubt that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the King. If you have come here today thinking, I don't know much about Jesus, but there's no way this man was real. There's no way that he walked the earth as a man, that he came born of a woman, then this text is for you. On the other hand, if you come thinking, I believe Jesus was a man, but there is no way that he could have possibly been more than that, then friend, this text is for you too. Because Matthew's genealogy presents us with undeniable evidence and proves that Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Now before we dive in, let's manage our expectations. These verses contain 42 generations and 51 names. It covers a little more than 2,000 years, as well as all the flavors of humanity. It contains kings and peasants, men and women from all walks of life. It contains Jews and Gentiles, winners and losers, the highest and the lowest, everyone in between. They are all represented here within this text. And this is especially important here at this time as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. Because he came from heaven, yes, but he also came through a woman. He came from a woman. And here is this human bloodline that runs all the way. It can go all the way back to Adam, to Abraham, to David, to Jesus. And the people that we see here on this page, they are his ancestors. As we saw last Christmas, he existed in the very morphe of God. But when he came to earth, he didn't just pop up in a manger. No, he is the legal heir to the throne of David. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention back to the text itself. And to help us keep our bearings, I've given us three headings this morning. It's a simple introduction, body, conclusion sort of format. First of all, Matthew points us to the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. Look at the first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right out of the gate, we're told that this book is all about Jesus. Appropriately enough, Jesus is the first name that we see here in our modern New Testament Bibles, in this section of our Bibles. And he will be the last name written at the end of Revelation 22. 
The entire New Testament, from start to finish, the entire record begins and ends with Jesus. And this genealogy acts as a bridge between everything that happened before the Messiah's arrival and everything that has happened since. All of human history has led up to this coming Savior. And now that he has arrived, he is introduced in Matthew with four names or titles that describe him well. From the outset, we are given snapshots of who he is, what he came to do, and how far his work will go. The first name is obviously Jesus. Jesus, which means Jehovah will save or God will surely save. So immediately we see his mission. His mission. He didn't come to spread the love or fight the government or be a good example. He came to save his people from their sins. Look at what the angel told David there in verse 21. He said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. His very name contains his mission to seek and to save that which is lost. He is first and foremost the great Savior of great sinners. After his mission, we see his mantle. His mantle. It's right there in the word Christ which is simply a Greek way of saying Messiah. It's a title that means the anointed one. So he has been anointed, set apart, and sanctioned by the Father and filled with power, making him the only one capable of accomplishing his saving mission. He cannot fail because he is the God-man. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The next title, the Son of David, refers to his majesty. His majesty. Notice, chronologically, Abraham came before David. But in this text, David is listed first. That's because the intention of this genealogy, it's not chronological, it's Christological. The whole point and purpose of this particular genealogy found here in Matthew is to shine a spotlight onto Christ. And both David and Abraham act as anchoring points within history. They they also received explicit promises from God in the form of covenants concerning the Christ. Each man received a unilateral and everlasting covenant from the Lord. David's covenant spoke directly to the Messiah's majesty. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. Matthew 1.1 is telling us that Jesus is that descendant. He is the legal heir to the throne, the rightful ruler, the Davidic king that God promised long ago. He is the son of David. And then finally, the last title, here in the first verse, the son of Abraham, refers to his magnitude. His magnitude. Backing up even further, before the Davidic dynasty, before the royal bloodline, you have Abraham. And another promise from God that through him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The promise was made to Abraham and his offspring. So it's no surprise that the record starts with Jesus as the object of that covenant. His salvation goes beyond the people of Israel to pig-eating Gentiles like me like so many of us here in this room. 
We are here today not because we are physical sons of Abraham, but because the promise God made to Abraham extends so far and so wide. The magnitude is so huge that it would go so far as to even reach us here in Washington State in the year 2020. So immediately, without hesitation, the New Testament record begins with a quick snapshot of who this God-man really is by giving us his mission, his mantle, his majesty, and his magnitude. There is no room left for questioning who this man claims to be. But there is room for wondering where exactly did this man come from? And is he truly a son of David? And is he truly a son of Abraham? If he is truly everything that Matthew 1.1 says that he is, then his lineage has to be traceable back to those figures, all the way back to David and back to Abraham. And that naturally leads us to our second heading, the ancestry of Christ. The ancestry of Christ. Now, to answer the question that is burning in everyone's mind right now, yes, I am going to try to walk through all 51 names. That is my goal today. And to answer the second question, Will we get out before our three o'clock business meeting? I hope so. I really do. In fact, I will do my best. Let me just go ahead and preemptively apologize. I kept thinking, even last night as I was pouring over my notes and trying to work things through and thinking, what can I leave in? What can I take out? I just kept thinking, there is no way I can preach this in one message. It's 17 verses and it's the entire Old Testament. What have I done? There is no way. So we may have to pick up the pace as we go. We may have to skip over a few things or at least not give them the treatment that they deserve. And so I preemptively apologize for that. But we are going to do our best. We're going to do our best today to try and cover and be as faithful to the biblical text before us as we possibly can. I mean, we're only covering everything from Genesis 11 to Matthew, so it shouldn't be too bad, right? Well, thankfully, to help us devour this elephant... The text has already been divided into three logical chunks. The first division covers the time from Abraham to David. So, the time of the patriarchs. The second division covers David to the Babylonian exile. So, the time of the kings. And the third division covers the time from the deportation or the leaving of Babylon to Christ. Each section certainly points to Christ and validates his kingship. But they also highlight particular aspects of God's character and power. What we have here is so much more than a simple list of names. And this is the heritage of the Messiah and the velvet backdrop that showcases his glory. So as we walk through the list, bear in mind that the trail before us is not random. There isn't anything random about this. This has been divinely appointed for our prophet. So what does this first section tell us about the incredible God that brings it all together? First of all, Jesus' lineage displays God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace. This grouping is full of God's undeserved and unmerited grace towards sinners. That first name should be enough to shock us awake. We see Abraham. Now when we see that name, we automatically think of a man of faith. We think of a father of a nation, a great man of a great nation. 
But let's not forget that before God called him, Abraham was Abram, just an average idol worshiper. We're told in Joshua 24 that he and his father worshiped other gods. He was born and raised in Ur the Chaldees, that's modern-day Iraq, where the primary god was the god of the moon. In fact, the ziggurat of Ur was dedicated to the moon god over 4,000 years ago, and it still stands in Iraq today. So when God called Abram, he wasn't looking for the most righteous man in a wicked world like he did with Noah. No, Abram was an idolater. He was as pagan as pagan can get. He was lost. He was without God and without hope. The fact that God took a man like Abram and turned him into the man that we know as Abraham is a testament to God's sovereign grace. God chose one of the most unlikely men on the face of the planet to father a nation and eventually the Messiah himself. The text says Abraham was the father of Isaac. Remember, Abraham had eight sons, one from Hagar, one from Sarah, and then six from Keturah after Sarah passed. But Isaac was the only son that came with God's covenant, God's promise. In Genesis 17, 19, God says, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. You know the story. This comes to Abraham long after he's too old to have kids, and he's already taken matters into his own hands by sleeping with one of his slaves to produce Ishmael. And yet God graciously gives him Isaac, the child of the promise. From there it says, Isaac, the father of Jacob. And again, Isaac, he didn't just have one son. He had two, Esau and Jacob. And by all accounts, Esau should have been the next in line. He was stronger, hairier, and more importantly, he was first. He was the first one. Legally, the name that we would expect to see on this list should be Esau, not Jacob. And yet God is so sovereign over the affairs of men, even the wicked things that men do, that he takes the runt, the secondborn, the least likely to succeed. And in an act of sheer sovereign grace, he sets his love upon him. Romans 9.13 says, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob didn't do anything to earn God's love or even deserve it. And yet before he was born, God chose for the last to be first and the first to be last. And then he says, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. You remember that Jacob, he had 12 sons who would later become the 12 tribes of Israel. And once again, we would expect to see Reuben's name here in Matthew. He was the firstborn, but God chooses to pass over Reuben and make Judah the next in line. We don't know why, why he picked Judah, but he did. The Messiah, the anointed one, would be known as the Lion of Judah. Not because Judah was the best of 12, but simply because God picked him. God only knows why Judah. Because verse 3 reminds us that Judah was not a righteous role model. He didn't have anything going for him either. Look at verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. By Tamar. He didn't have to include that, but he did. 
Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. So why is her name on the list? Because you'll remember that after her husband died, what did she do? She dressed herself up as a prostitute, covered her face, and did everything she could to get pregnant. Along comes Judah, her father-in-law. And you remember what happens next. It's not PG. It's disgusting. And to add to the shame, she then has twins, two sons, Perez and Zerah. Genesis 38 says, When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Wow. How would you like for those to be the only words you ever say recorded in Scripture? What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So even from the womb, God is reversing the order and choosing who the birthright and the blessing would go to. His absolute sovereignty knows no limits, none. But the most remarkable aspect of these names is that, is that they would be found here in the listing of the Messiah's lineage at all, that any of these names would be here. I mean, here in just a little while, we'll see that some of the names get skipped, and that's intentional. They are left out for a reason. But Judah and Tamar and the twin boys that resulted from their wicked night of prostitution, incest, and deception, their names have been preserved for all time as ancestors to the king of kings. And so, Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. These names are easy because Scripture doesn't have anything to say about them. That's how important they were. They did nothing, nothing worth writing about. As far as the biblical record is concerned, there wasn't anything special about these men. They just blended in. They lived their lives, and that's all she wrote. And yet, here they are, listed in the king's family tree, because God delights to take the nobodies of this world and turn them into somebodies. And Paul told the Corinthians, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring, uh, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is who God is. And these are the people that God chose in his infinite wisdom to shame the wise. He has always taken great pleasure enjoy and flipping the narrative of the world taking the world's losers the plain the forgotten the ordinary and working through them and bringing about something incredible i don't know about you but when i look at this text when i look at these passages when i see these lists of names and i think of their stories it gives me hope it gives me great confidence and joy to know that this is the type of person that god saves 
God doesn't look for the person who pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps and does their best and therefore earns some measure of glory for themselves. Those are not the people that God saves. No, he reaches down into the depths, into the filth, into the disgusting mire of humanity, and he pulls us out and he turns us into precious jewels. That is what God does by his sovereign grace. Look at verse 4. It says, Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab's daughter would marry Aaron, so that's his claim to fame. He was Aaron's father-in-law. At least the next two names carry a little weight with them. The rest of the verse says, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Nashon was the prince of the tribe of Judah at the beginning of their time in the wilderness, and Salmon picked up the mantle as soon as his father fell. But look at verse 5. And Solomon, the father of Boaz. Boaz. Now there's a name we all like. That's good. But what does he add after that? He says, by Rahab, another prostitute. That was her livelihood, selling herself to those who passed through Jericho. It wasn't until her encounter with the spies that she believed in the Lord, repented of her sin, and experienced the sovereign grace of God in her life. Listen, Rahab appears in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, for a reason. And she appears here in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ for a reason. Her story reminds us that it doesn't matter what baggage you might have in your background. If you repent and believe in the one who came to save his people from their sins, God can use you. He can use you. He is the God of hope, the God of restoration, and the God of new beginnings. And he takes those whose sins are like scarlet, and he washes them white as snow. And so Rahab was the mother of Boaz, the kingsman redeemer, who was the father of Obed, by Ruth. By Ruth. Why that? Why Ruth? Why is she on this list? She didn't need to be listed here within this first grouping of the king's lineage. Again, why her? In fact, most of the wives are not listed. Look at the ones who are. You've got Tamar prostituting herself to her father-in-law. You've got Rahab who made a career out of prostitution. And now Ruth, a Gentile outcast, and a Moabitess. Remember the Moabites. You remember where they came from? They came from another incestuous relationship, this time between Lot and his daughters after the destruction of Sodom. According to Deuteronomy 23.3, no Moabite was allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord, even into the 10th generation. And yet by God's sovereign grace, he reaches out and he grabs Ruth, the outcast, And he pulls her into the kingdom of God as one of the most important ancestors to the king himself. Again, it doesn't matter where you come from or who people say that you are. God chooses the base things, the outcasts, the least likely to accomplish his purposes. We see that her son Obed was the father of Jesse and that Jesse was the father of David the king. King David himself. Once again, God is the one who determines which son is his man. Remember, Jesse had eight sons. And when Samuel arrived, the first seven were invited to attend the sacrifice. 
One by one, Jesse paraded his sons before the prophet. But what did God say? He said, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so it was David, the eighth son, who was tending sheep and wasn't even invited, the runt of the litter. He was God's sovereign choice to be king. He was the choice. At this point in the messianic line, with seven strong candidates and a boy to choose from, God chooses the boy. He chooses the youngest, the smallest, and the least likely candidate to become the king of his people and the forerunner of Christ himself. This entire list, but especially this first section, is an incredible testimony to the sovereign grace of God. From Abraham to David, you have grace piled upon grace, piled upon grace. Now, if unlike me, you are a math person, you'll notice that something doesn't add up here. From Solomon to Jesse, you have four names taking up 380 years. So a few generations have been skipped here, and that's okay. That's okay. Let me remind you that the intention of this genealogy is Christological, not chronological. It all points back to Christ, and he is the focus of this section. If you are really interested, you can find the generations that were skipped in 1 Chronicles 2. So this isn't a mistake, and the Bible is not hiding anything. Rather, this is a brilliant showcase of the grace of God in the lineage of Christ. This is purposeful. These names have been chosen. They have been picked out and placed here on the page, the first page of your New Testament for a reason. This is a brilliant showcase of God's grace in the heritage of Christ. He skips over the draft picks and shows unfathomable, unfathomable favor towards those who don't even deserve it. That's the first and brightest aspect of God's character that we see here put on display within this genealogy, his sovereign grace. The next section, from David to the exile, displays God's steadfast love. His steadfast love. In the Hebrew text, we see that word hesed a lot. The NASB translates it loving kindness, while the ESV translates it steadfast love. And while love and kindness is certainly a part of the word's meaning, it specifically zeroes in on the covenant faithfulness of God. It's this idea that God will never break a promise. When he says something, he follows it through to the end. He will never backtrack, he will never backpedal, he will never overwrite himself. God is completely faithful, completely true. He cannot lie, he does not lie, and he never will lie. No matter what happens, he will always remain true to his word. And his steadfast love shines so brightly when you consider the promise that he made to David and what happened to the monarchy immediately after that. Look at the rest of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Again, we're given extra information that it tells us more than just who fathered who. Here, Bathsheba is alluded to. She's mentioned. The woman that David committed adultery with. And Uriah, her husband, the man he murdered to cover up his sin. 
neither of which are necessary for this genealogy. But the Spirit does not want us to forget that God's grace is endless. And even the worst, most heinous sins we commit are powerless to prevent God from fulfilling His promises. Listen, church, friends, we all disappoint God. I hate to break it to you, but we do. We all disappoint God. Go ahead, search the earth. There is no one righteous, not even one. But thankfully, God is a friend of sinners. All that, all that, all that he needed to say within this text is that David was the father of Solomon. That's all he had to say. But he goes beyond that. The Spirit says, don't forget, there's more to the story than that. Now at this point, we find ourselves at a crossroad. Here the family tree splits. Matthew's genealogy will follow Solomon all the way down to Joseph. While Luke's genealogy will follow Nathan all the way down to Mary. So we have a branching off of the two lines that will eventually converge back again in Jesus' parents. Solomon's line, as we see in Matthew, will give us the royal line, the kingly line of who's next in line for the throne. His older brother, Nathan's line, we see that in Luke, and that will give us the actual bloodline from David that bypasses the throne altogether. And the whole reason for such a break is the virgin birth. The virgin birth. I, I said that I would get through all of the names, but for the sake of time, let me just start speeding things up a little bit. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. The kings listed in the center section follow Rehoboam's line to the south after the king divided. There were 20 kings in total, and not all of them are listed here. It's important to note that the word father can also mean ancestor. So it doesn't mean that you know, this is my father, like this is my dad. It could be, or it could also just be, this is the male who came before me somewhere along the line. This is my ancestor. So Matthew's genealogy, unlike Luke's, is more concerned about tracing the kingly line than it is about who actually fathered who. We see Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, the second king of Judah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. He was king number three. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, king number four. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, king number five. At this point, a few kings get skipped. So Joram, the ancestor of Uzziah, the tenth king of Judah, the one who died at the time of Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Verse 9, you've got Jotham, number 11, Ahaz, number 12, and Hezekiah, lucky 13. Verse 10, Manasseh is king 14, Amos 15, Josiah 16. And then finally, verse 11 says, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now this Jeconiah, he was a real scoundrel. He was something. Let's go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 22. Back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah 22. Trust me, this is worth looking at on the page. Because we have a knot here that needs to be untied. We have a mess. Because God will pronounce a curse on Jeconiah and all of his descendants throughout the kingly line. This man was so wicked, so depraved, so awful. 
Look at God's response, starting in verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, that's just a shorthand way of saying Jeconiah, Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. God says, if you were a ring on my hand, I would cast you off. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. And that is exactly what happened. You would expect that to happen because God said it, and that is exactly how it happened. After sitting on the throne for only a few months, he was conquered. And taken off to Babylon to die. Verse 27, But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. And with that, God closes off the kingly line. Here we have the rest of the story. He says, Is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot of vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into the land that they do not know? O land! O land, O land, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. He says, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. God says, this is the end of the line. I am ending it with Jeconiah. There will no longer be a kingly succession of someone sitting on the throne after Jeconiah. He is the last man to sit on Jeconiah's throne that was an actual heir. The next man to sit on his throne temporarily would be his uncle. Because God doesn't make idle threats. Jeconiah had seven sons, but God says, write this man down as childless. Because the line ends with him. It's over. We're done. But look at what comes next. Jeremiah 23, the very next line. He says, Woe to the shepherds. The shepherds, that would be the leaders of the country, the spiritual leaders, but also the political leaders, the the movers and the shakers, the kings and the priests. He says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. That's terrifying. Terrifying. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, that is the promised land, And they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Now here's the really good part. Here's where Jesus comes into play. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's wonderful. Good news. 
But we still have a problem. God has said no descendant of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne and prosper. And at the same time, he says he will rise up a righteous branch from Judah. So God has promised both a curse and a blessing through the line of Judah, where the anointed king must be born. God will not revoke the curse like he will not revoke the blessing. So how is this going to work? How could this possibly come together? The answer is the virgin birth. There will be no more kingly succession after Jeconiah. The curse will continue all the way to Joseph. But, born of a virgin, Jesus will possess all the legal rights to the throne without the curse of Jeconiah. And because his mother was a descendant of David by another line, he will also possess all the paternal rights as well. Only God could come up with such a plan. Only God could come up with something so brilliant, so genius as this, for his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love to harmonize in such a way as this. If it were not for the virgin birth, Jesus would have been born into sin and under a curse of God. But by the breaking off and the merging together of two lines, one with each parent, Jesus is both the legal heir to the throne through Joseph, and he is also the right descendant the rightful descendant of David through Mary. What an incredible God we serve. What an incredible thing. We we could have had a thousand church business meetings and never come up with this. We could have busted our heads together trying to figure out how to solve this problem. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom, he comes up with the virgin birth. He says, no, I'm going to let one line go in this direction, one line go in that direction. He is going to legally be the rightful heir to the throne. And at the same time, he is going to be the lion of Judah. He is going to be the one who comes from and fulfills everything that I have said will come to pass. And he is going to do it without the curse that I have placed upon this line over here. That is brilliant. That is fantastic. What an incredible God we have. Let's bring this to an end with one section left. We've seen God's sovereign grace and God's steadfast love. Finally, God's lineage displays God's sustaining word. God's sustaining word. Verse 12 says, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel? Yeah. We'll say that. And Shatiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel, he was the first to come back to the promised land after the Babylonian exile. And that's important because Micah 5.2 says that the coming king will be born in Bethlehem. So God uses Zerubbabel to bring the line back to the right spot, even geographically, after the exile. And he becomes the governor of Jerusalem. Not one word of God's revealed plan and purpose will go unfulfilled. But Zerubbabel will also be the last of these names that we see here in the Old Testament. The remaining names in verses 14 through 15 give us the kingly line, although cursed and without a throne through the intertestamental period. That 400 years of silence that we have in our Bibles between Malachi or technically Nehemiah, that's where the historical record ends, from Nehemiah to Matthew. We know little about these people because Scripture is silent 
apart from their listing here. But we find ourselves back in familiar territory as we get closer to the end. Look at verse, nine, look at verse 16. We have Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Notice it doesn't say Joseph, the father of Jesus, like everyone else in this list. Instead, he breaks protocol. He says, Joseph, the husband of Mary. That's because Jesus only had one human parent. He was born of the woman, under the law, without a curse and without sin. From start to finish, again, God's word remains unhindered. And then that leads us to our final heading. We've seen the authority of Christ, the ancestry of Christ, and under the direction of God's sovereign grace, God's steadfast love, and God's sustaining word, we finally have the arrival of Christ. The arrival of Christ. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. That is all of the generations that he has listed here. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That pretty much sums it up. Again, it all starts with Abraham, but it all ends with Christ. With each generation, the whole of human history is moving closer and closer to the king. He is the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Son of David, and the Son of Abraham. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the glory of Israel and the God of Gentiles. He is the one who will save his people from their sins. There is no one like him because he is Jesus, the Christ. Next week we'll look in more depth here as we flesh out the rest of chapter 1. We will see the king's arrival in full color and beautiful display as described by God himself. But the Christmas story does not start in verse 18 because the Christ didn't, appear, didn't just appear out of thin air. Like I said earlier, he didn't just pop up in a manger. His mantle, his mission, his majesty, his magnitude, all of who he is, all of what he came to do, everything that he set himself to accomplish, all of that was determined long ago. Well, there you have it. A little over 2,000 years of scandal, shame, and sinfulness. And yet, this is the king's family tree. This is where he comes from. Look at that list again. You have liars, deceivers, adulterers, murderers, fornicators, outcasts, you name it. Also notice that all of the women that are listed here, out of all the women that are eligible for this list, only four appear. None of the great matriarchs like Sarah, Rebecca, or Leah are mentioned. Just those known for incest, prostitution, scandal, and adultery. Why? Why? For by grace you have been saved. And that not of yourselves. It is through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man should boast. I believe it's safe to say that this genealogy, it's not the hall of fame. It's the hall of shame. With failure after failure put on display. But here's the good news. God doesn't set his mercy and his grace on the cream of the crop. He places his mercy and grace on those who have curdled in the sun. If you are a great sinner today, then friend, you are in great company. 
And like all of us, you need a great Savior. You need to repent of your sin. You need to turn to this Christ who was born of this family tree. And if you do that, he will forgive you and graft you into his divine family as one adopted into the family of God himself. He is Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, our prophet, priest, and king. He is the fulfillment of the covenants, and he is the savior of the world. He is the one who, yes, here at Christmas time, we sing songs and we celebrate the fact that he came from heaven. He left the throne room of heaven to enter into this world through the birth canal of a woman. What an incredible, incredible thing. We sing songs about it, we celebrate it, we teach our children the story. But he entered into the stream of humanity to live a perfect life. Unlike every other name on this list, unlike you, unlike me, he lived a perfect life. He didn't sin, not once. Not one time did he commit an immoral, filthy act. Not one time did he live up to his ancestral roots that we see here in Matthew chapter 1. He superseded them by all extents, by becoming the perfect God-man, fully God and fully man. Only he could stand in between God, a holy God and sinful man. Only he could reach across that expanse and bring the two together. And he did that by living a perfect, actively obedient life to the Father, by obeying everything, everything that this book demands and requires in order to die a criminal's death in the place of sinners on the cross so that people like you, people like me, people like Abraham, David, and everyone else listed here in this text could be saved by placing our faith, our trust solely in him, in his sacrifice, so that his righteousness, as we've been looking at here in Philippians just over the last few weeks, so that his righteousness, that alien righteousness that doesn't come from within, that doesn't come from within us, that alien righteousness of Christ himself, that perfect record, could then be accredited to our account so that our sin would be placed on him on the cross and be paid for, so that his righteousness, his perfect life, could then be applied to us. Friends, you must, you must repent and believe in this Savior if you are to be saved. Listen, the Jesus of this genealogy, he is the only righteous man to have ever lived. And he is the only hope that any of us have. We must trust in him so that his righteousness can be accredited to our account. So friend, if you have not come to this king, today is the day to bow the knee and join his family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God of heaven, Lord, again, we look at texts such as these and how you would choose in your infinite wisdom to begin the New Testament section of our Bibles. God, thank you. Thank you for your sovereign power, for your control, that sovereign grace that we see put on display in front of the, the velvet backdrop of sinful humanity listed here in this text. Lord, we know that none of us in this room are greater than the names that we see here on this page. 
Lord, we have all sinned in our hearts. We have all rebelled against you. We have all sinned in our actions, in our attitudes. Lord, we infinitely fall short day after day after day, and yet you set your love upon sinners. You save the unsavable. Lord, you have sent your Son, your Messiah. Lord, no one else could fulfill this lineage. No one else could live up to what we see here in the pages of Scripture, the genius that you have put on display in the breaking off of two lines and bringing them back together in order to fulfill every promise, every curse that you have ever made. God, thank you. Thank you for the wondrous display of your sovereign grace, your steadfast love, and your sustaining word that we have here before us today. Thank you, Lord, and for applying it all to us in our hearts through the saving work of your Savior, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Lord, I pray as we turn our hearts and minds now to the table, to the Lord's table, Lord, I pray that we would examine ourselves, Lord, that we would confess our sins before you, that we would remember the cross, that we would forgive each other, that if there is any, any ought between us in, in any way, Lord, that we would do what is necessary to make that right. Lord, I pray also that if there is anyone here this morning who isn't sure about their salvation, they aren't 100% certain that their sins have been covered by the blood of this Savior. Lord, I pray that you would continue to draw them, that you, would, that you would lift their spirits, that you would change their heart, that you would call them to your Son, and that you would use us to fill in the gaps, to lead them in the way of truth. God, work in this congregation. Lord, we love you as we keep our attention on Christmas throughout this season. I pray that you would continue to lift our spirits, that we would not be dragged down by the things we see on the news or the things that we, we come across on our phones. But that instead our hearts would be gladdened as we ultimately look to the sovereign God, this King of heaven and earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who has entered into the stream of humanity in order to save it. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In your precious and holy name, amen.